Good morning. I have uh, been informed and that I need to tell you that there is no Bible time this morning. So um, nobody gets up and leaves. But I will remind you that there is a cry room. And uh, parents, if you need to use that cry room, you must take your child with you. You, <laughs> you don't get to go in there by yourself and cry and leave a kid in here, okay? So we got all that straight. Uh, spring break is upon us, apparently. And so we've got a lot of folks traveling, a lot of folks that will be traveling. And I guess that's the reason why we're not having Bible time. Our text this morning is going to be in Acts chapter 12, but I want to remind you of what we talked about four weeks ago. Everybody remember that? Four weeks ago? This is sort of a, a part two, if you will, about God's wisdom, the wisdom of God on display. Um, we were in Ephesians uh, talking about that there was a mystery from the very beginning of time and for centuries and centuries, there was this mystery that had not yet been revealed. But now, through Jesus Christ, it has been revealed. And namely, the first part of that mystery is that there was a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Greeks. And we could also say between any kind of people, any kind of people that there would have a dividing wall between them, male or female, or rich or poor, young or old, whatever, that that dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And the reason is that God was reconciling fallen people back to himself through Jesus, and not just reconciling people to himself, but guess what? Also reconciling people to each other so that out of Jew and out of Greek, there would be one new humanity, one new man, not, in, not two individual people, but coming together in Christ, one man, one body, one spirit, one heart that beats in all of us. And that had been kept hidden. That was a mystery for centuries. And then he says that in the church, we're in Ephesians chapter 3 now, verse 10, that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be on display to all the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. You remember, you remember us talking about that? Some of you came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I've never thought of it that way. I've never thought about the church as something that is on display. But it's as if God is shining a spotlight on the church. And he's telling all of those evil powers and those rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, he's saying, look at my church. He's shining a spotlight on us and he's saying, this is where you're going to see my wisdom. You won't see this kind of wisdom in the world because the world doesn't love that way. The world divides itself up into this class, into this class, into this class of people or individual. They, they hunker down and they hate this class, and this class hates that class. It says, you won't see that in the church. Look at my body. Look at my people. This is where you will see my wisdom. And the world doesn't understand that. 
The, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, they cannot comprehend that kind of love. And so as we pick up in Acts chapter 12, the story that we're going to look at, we're going to see the wisdom of God revealed in his church in at least two ways. And the first is that in the church, God's wisdom is displayed, it's shown, and our understanding of power, our understanding of real power is turned upside down. It's completely turned upside down. Let's look at Acts chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. This is, this is happening about uh, 10 years after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes we, we, we lose sight of, of the chronology, but this is uh, about 10 years after Jesus was crucified. Herod is arresting people that belong to the church, intending to persecute them. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That probably means he was beheaded. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Luke, who is the writer of the Gospel of Luke, but also he's the writer of the book of Acts, he begins this account with King Herod. Herod was an evil king. He was a really bad dude, okay? That, that's putting it nicely. He um, weaseled, manipulated his way into becoming king by sucking up to the Roman authorities, and this is how he uses his power. He has one of... The, the leaders, well, he helped to have Jesus killed, obviously, but now he kills James, one of the, the leaders in the church, beheads him. He arrests Peter. He uses the courts, the jails, the soldiers. That's how he uses his power. And his motivation for doing that is very clear. He says when he, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he also had Peter arrested. That explains why, uh, why he did that, because he's trying to gain favor with the rest of the Jews. And he says he's going to wait until the Passover to put Peter on trial, because there would be a lot of people gathering there in the city for Passover. And he's going to make a big spectacle of, of all of this so that he, he can gain more, uh, more power with the people. Um, that's how, G, that's how Herod uses his power, the consummate politician. Uh, he doesn't really care about the church. Um, he's just using them as a pawn. He's exploiting the church. And Herod epitomizes the wisdom of the world. The wisdom, the powers, the authorities in the heavenly realms that say that, that real power comes through aggression. It comes through... Uh, manipulation that comes through strength, armies, status, jails, palaces, courts, anger. But in the midst of that, God says, look at my church. 
Look at the church because that's where you're going to see my wisdom. Look at verse 5. So Peter, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly, earnestly praying to God for him. Prayer. Think, think about this just for a second. The king, all of his power, all of his courts, his jails, his armies, they're all lined up against you. He's killed your leader. Now he's gone after uh, one of the next leaders. All of this thing, all of the power that he can throw against you is coming at you, and you decide you're going to pray. You decide you're going to pray. That, that, that's it? You're, you're not going to go out and, and picket and carry signs and, and, and say, you know, we've got to vote this guy out of power. No, you're not going to get your sword. You're not going to go after them. What you're going to do is just gather together and pray. Does that make a lot of sense by the world's wisdom? Not at all. But one of the one of the most dominant themes in Luke's writing, both in the gospel and also, I think, here in the book of Acts, really throughout all of Scripture, is that God wants to reveal how silly the wisdom of the world is by using the foolish things of the world to disarm the things that really look powerful. God always seems to be using that which looks foolish in the eyes of the world to shame them, to show that he really is powerful. In the book of Zechariah, a prophetic book, we're told that God's going to accomplish some things, but it says, it will not be by strength nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. The book of Jeremiah, the prophet says, don't let the wise man boast in wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let the man who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, the Lord. Riches, strength, power, those, those things don't matter. What matters is God and his wisdom. And where are you going to find that wisdom? He says you're going to find it here in the church. That's where that wisdom is on display. So, so consider the scene here in Jerusalem. God has gathered all the heavenly hosts. They're looking down at what's going on. Herod has his armies. He has his swords, his jails, his power, his authority. All of that's coming hard against the church. And the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, they say, wow, look at that. Look at what's happening. And God says, oh, yeah, look at my church. Consider my church, because that's where you're going to see my wisdom. And what do the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realms see when they look at the church? They don't, they don't see kings. They don't see people in in powerful places, they see fishermen and tax collectors, women, widows. That's what they see, a ragtag group of people, forgotten, gathering together in a little house. And what are they doing? They're praying. 
the things of the world. God has chosen the things that would shame the wise in the world. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he's chosen the things that are low to make a mockery of that which the world thinks of as so high and so powerful. Think about it for a moment with me. Why do we pray? Why do Christians, why do people in the church, why do we come together? Why do we pray? Some people think that the reason we pray as Christians is because we're trying to manipulate or control God to get him to, get him to do what we want him to do. Prayer is some sort of, of way of holding God in our debt. If we pray the right way and if we say in Jesus' name at the end of it, then God is obligated to do what we ask him. If we just pray enough and use the right words, God's got to do it. But that's not prayer. That's not why we pray. Believe it or not, God's a lot more complicated than that. Some people think the reason that we pray is because the outcomes when we pray are always better than if we don't pray. Did you hear what I said? Sometimes we think we pray because the outcomes are always better than if we don't pray. Is that true? Have you found that to be true in your life? Do you think that the church... When, when Herod seized James, do you think the church was praying for James? Do you? What happened to James? Got his head cut off. <laughs> now, it happens better for Peter in this situation, as we'll see here in just a moment. But several years later, Peter finds himself hanging upside down on a cross, crucified. Don't you think the church was praying for Peter then? Do things always turn out better in your life and in your situations when you pray versus if you don't pray? That's not why we pray. We don't pray because it always works out better if we do. A lot of people think, especially in, I think in our day and age, that if we put out just some positive, this positive mental energy that, that good things will flow back into our lives, that if we become, you know, people that just, you know, exude this positivity that, that will open the world up for that to come back to us, and that's just, that's just garbage. That sounds more like new age garbage than it does prayer. Listen to me. The reason we pray, and, and there, are, there are many reasons that we pray, but we pray because when as people of God, we are displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers, the powers, the authorities in the heavenly realm. And what we are declaring when we're on our knees is that we will not put our hope and our trust in the things of the world, but that we will put our trust in God alone. We won't trust in our wealth, in our strength, in our wisdom, in our politicians, Anything that we possess, we put our trust in God alone. That's what we're declaring. And when the heavenly powers see that kind of foolish wisdom, they tremble because they cannot comprehend it. Why? Why would weak earthlings bow before 
God and pray that way. They, they can't comprehend it. It's foolishness to them. It's foolishness to our world. You know, I, I look over here and I see our, our brother Chad here this morning. Chad, I'm so, I'm so glad that you're here. When the morning of Chad's surgery, Chad, if I can just say this, I haven't asked you, but I'm going to say this. The morning of your surgery, Chad, I had, I had been told, and I think you had said to at least one of our shepherds that the reason you were having this surgery was not because it was going to make things better, but it was just so that things wouldn't get any worse. And I sat there, by the time I was sipping my first cup of coffee, you were already in the hospital being prepped, and I was just at, on my first cup. And I sat there, and I, was, and I began to pray, and I was praying for you, Chad. And I just, I said, God, I refuse to pray that this is only a stopgap measure that things won't get any worse. I said, God, you are the God that can do anything. All things are possible with you. And so I'm not praying that Chad won't get any worse. I'm praying that you will reverse that which has happened in his life, that you will make things better, that he'll come out of this and he will be improved, not just hanging on. Are you with me? Now, is, is God going to answer that prayer the way that I want? I don't know. Time will tell. And, and, and you've had a rough go so far, and, but things are getting better. So we don't know what the outcome is. But I just refuse to say, God, just let him tie a knot and hang on and not get any worse. God, you can do anything. Why would I pray just, just help him not get worse? No. You, we get on our knees and we say, God, you're the God of everything. You made everything. You created us. You know us. You can do anything. So I'm asking you to do this by your power. And if it happens, God will give you glory. We'll say thank you and we'll give you all of the glory because we know that we couldn't do anything. We're powerless. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, you would accomplish this. And that's what I prayed. So far, so good. But time will tell. What if God doesn't continue to bless and what if things don't get better? And, it, and he just hangs on and things don't get any worse. God is still worthy of our praise. God is still good. You see, we make the problem, and, and we, we, sometimes we convey this to people, and, it, and it, it creates a dichotomy that we have a hard time wrestling with because someone says, I prayed for this, and look what happened. Good things happen, and we say, praise God, praise God. And then somebody else over here prays, and that good thing doesn't happen. So what does that make God? in their eyes. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want to bless me like he blessed them. You see, it's almost as if we paint God in the corner and God's not a good God. Well, I can't love a God who didn't answer my prayer. He answered their prayer, you see. So what does that do in our minds? We say God's not big enough or God's not powerful enough or God doesn't love me. And it winds up, our faith winds up eroding instead of growing. Listen to me. If God never, if God never does another good thing in your life, if God never, quote, blesses you with any else, any other good thing, 
God is worthy of your praise. If you got sick today and the rest of your life was nothing but, but pain and trouble and sickness and, and boils and, and cancer, and, and God is worthy of your praise because God is good. God is good. And everything he does is good. You say, well, cancer's not good. No, it's not good. But we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world because of sin. God doesn't make those things happen. But when they happen, will we trust him? Will we love him? Will we get on our knees and say, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I put my trust in you and in you alone. Because he's good all the time. I think I went off script a little bit, but that's all right. When we're on our knees in prayer, we are revealing the counterintuitive wisdom of the kingdom of God. Wisdom that says that power is not found in aggression or anger or war or swords, but power is found in weakness. It was weakness that overcame the world to the cross. And it is the weakness of the church in prayer that will make a mockery of the powers of this world. When Jesus died on the cross, he was showing weakness. It looked like weakness to the world. But if you remember, Jesus said, no man takes my life. Do you think there was a man or a group of men or an army that could could have crucified the Son of God if he had said no? Do you think, do you think at church? Do you think anybody could have taken Jesus' life had he said, not going to happen today? Jesus said, I lay my life down on my own accord. Even to the point when he was dying on the cross, listen to me. When he died on the cross, even there were men that had hung on the cross a lot longer than six hours. Some hung on the cross for days. When Jesus died, he looked up to the Father and he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even to the point of death, man was not killing him. Jesus gave up his spirit. He decided when it was time, when it was finished. No man took his life. He allowed those things to happen to him. It was through weakness that the most powerful thing on earth ever happened. They crucified the Son of God. And on three days, three days later, he came out of the grave. The reason we pray is not because the outcome is always good, and the reason we pray is not to manipulate God or strong-arm him into doing our will. The reason we pray is because it reveals the countercultural, counter-worldly wisdom of God, and it displays his wisdom before the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, and it declares that their way will not have victory. And even if we die, even if things don't turn out the way we pray, as Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we have our minds set on things above, not on things below, all of a sudden this, 
this stuff just doesn't affect us anymore because we know where we're headed. Do we want to die? No, we don't want to die. We want to live. We want to live. But to live means we're going to live for Jesus, and to die means that we have a better thing waiting for us. We're going to gain our heavenly reward. We face a problem. A couple of years ago, they did a survey, and they asked churches just in the United States, what are your top ten priorities, the top ten priorities of your church? And when they gathered all the data, assimilated all of that, looked at it, only one in 25 churches said prayer was in their top 10 list. One in 25 churches said prayer was in their top 10 list. Can you believe that? I remember being a kid, we were over in Northeast Arkansas visiting my grandmother. My grandmother was a saint in every sense of the word. She was just a godly Christian woman. My grandfather, not so much. He was kind of a, a rascal at times. And my, my grandmother had to put up with him. She was always going to church, always going to church. My grandfather never went. My grandmother was so faithful. One Wednesday night, she said we had to, had to get cleaned up after supper so we could go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. And I remember saying to her, I remember saying, Grandma, why do you call it prayer meeting? Because we're going to Bible class. She says, well, hon, when I was your age, she said, when we went to meet at Wednesday night, it was a prayer meeting. She said, that's all we did. We prayed for an hour. And I thought to myself, I, I, I couldn't comprehend a group of people gathering together and praying for an hour, a solid hour. I mean, you don't go to Bible class. That's all you do is just pray? She said, yeah, that's, that's why we used to call it prayer meeting. That's why I still call it prayer meeting, because that's what it was, a meeting where we got together and prayed. Prayer is how we display the wisdom of God. The church in Jerusalem prayed what happened is pretty amazing. Let's pick up the story in verse 6, Acts chapter 12. Y'all forgot we were in Acts 12, didn't you? <laughs> verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring, bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt 
that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door, and she exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. But when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. What I love about the story in our text is that nobody believed what they were praying for had actually happened. Nobody believed that what they had gathered together to pray for had actually happened. Think about it. Obedience, maybe it was just desperation, I don't know, but it led the church in Jerusalem to gather to pray for Peter's release, to earnestly, it says, to earnestly pray for his release. And the text says, when, when Rhoda barges in and says, hey, Peter's at the door, they think she's crazy. Doesn't it strike you as odd that not one single adult in the story thinks that God has done a miracle? But just one little girl? I mean, think about it. All of them praying, they... they they think, well, there's no way that this is happening. And in fact, well, maybe, it, maybe it's his angel, which maybe sort of gives rise to the fact that they believe that everybody has their own personal angel that, that watches over them. We, we think that sometimes, right? Even Peter himself doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't realize until till it's all over and he's been let out of the prison that, that this is really happening. He thinks it's a dream or he thinks it's a vision. Not one adult and the story believes that God has done a miraculous thing. Just one little girl, a servant girl. I wonder why Luke, Luke includes this in his narrative. I think it would have been just as amazing if he had totally ignored this little detail about, about Rhoda. But think, think about it. Think about how he structures this narrative. He begins with, with Herod, the evil king. Who is Herod? He's an adult. He's a male. He's king. He's powerful. He has all, everything at his disposal. And as we're going to see here in a minute, he ends the narrative also with King Herod. And right in the middle of this bookend, he has Rhoda, a little servant girl. Think about Rhoda. Rhoda's got like three strikes against her, okay? First of all, she's a girl. Girls in the first century, zero power, zero respect, no strength. She's a girl. 
Guess what? She's a child. Children in the first century, no power, no respect, no rights. And guess what, number three? She's a servant. She's not even from a rich family. She's a little servant girl. Three strikes against her. What do you think Luke is doing here? She is the complete opposite of Herod, and yet she is celebrated in the text as the example of faith, the one who had faith. I think Luke is saying that in God's kingdom, in his church, through his wisdom, we, we view people differently. Man looks at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. Let's look at how this ends up with, for King Herod. Now, this happens sometime later. Luke didn't have to include it now, but I think he includes it now on purpose to show us. The end of verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there for a while. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, that's a cool name, isn't it? They secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Now look at this, verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. If you read Josephus, Josephus in his account says that on this day Herod had a robe that was glowing. It was shiny. It was, it was, it was um, very uh, bawdy and audacious. He delivered this public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> but the word of God continued to increase and to spread. I don't mean to, la to laugh at the misfortune of someone, but <laughs> it seems quite appropriate, does it not? Herod refuses to give praise to God, takes all of this glory for himself, and God strikes him down, and he's eaten by worms. Well, my time is short. I hear the kiddos starting to rumble. What am I going to slash? What am I going to slash? This, this, this. I, wanna, I, wa I just want to remind us of what Paul says. He wrote in Galatians chapter 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You put on Christ. And then he says, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's not even male or female. Why? Because you're all one. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now that has nothing in the world to do 
with our roles and our relationships in the body of Christ. He's not saying that when you come to Jesus Christ, you cease to be a Jew or you cease to be a Greek. He's not saying you're not a man anymore, you're not a woman. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that none of that matters in the eyes of God, in the eyes of, of salvation. You're all one. You're all one body. That's the second part of that mystery, that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and he's made us all one, one new humanity. What the story in Acts reveals to us, I think, is that faith can come from anyone, not just some ordained church leader, but even a servant girl who has the audacity to believe that God is actually capable of doing something. What if, what if, as a community of believers, that Every now and then, I mean just once in a while, that we as a community of believers had the audacity to believe that God was capable of doing anything. How would we live? How would we be different? What if we had the boldness, the audacity to say, we're going to do something that just makes no earthly sense. <laughs> it makes no sense when the world looks at it, but we believe that with God on our side, all things are possible. What would that look like if we as a body of people, a community of believers, still believed in miracles? You know why I think, you know, I'm getting wound up, it just might as well go. A servant girl, she believed when Peter was knocking at the door. She comes back and says, Peter's at the door. One of the reasons I think that none of the adults believed it is that sometimes we as adults, the world just beats the, the amazement and the wonder out of us. It's like it just beats all of that out of us, and, and we just get so worn down and beat up by the world, it's almost like we, we just kind of throw our hands up and we say, yeah, I know God can do miracles, but they don't happen in my life. You know, they just don't happen in my life. And a child has not yet had that beaten out of them. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's why we take our kids to Disney World, right? Because everything's magical. God, you know, everything is just wonderful. We, we took Haley when she was seven years old. We saved up our money and we took her, and she was just at the perfect age where everything was magical. Every, everyone was a princess, and people would just stop in the middle of everything and start singing and dancing, and the world was just, you know, was, was wonderful. When you're a child, you still believe. You're still amazed. Sometimes as adults, we get, we get it beaten out of us. We get knocked down, and, we're, and, and we just get tired. I think that's part of why they didn't realize what had happened. But a little servant girl named Rhoda was still able to be amazed. I want us to be amazed. I want, I want us to be amazed when we come here every Sunday. I want us to come here expecting to meet with a supernatural God. I want us to come here believing that something is going to happen. 
that we are in the presence of God, that he is here with us, and that something supernatural just might occur because we're in the presence of a holy supernatural God. What did you expect when you came here this morning? We're just going to go through the motions, sing a few songs, take a Lord's Supper, go home? Or did you expect to have an encounter with a holy, righteous, awesome God this morning? That's what I want us to expect. Because every time we gather, we, we are declaring to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms that our God he is alive. 728B, Steve, our God is alive, and he is the only God, and he is the only God that we serve. What do I want us to get from our passage this morning? Hmm. Should we devote ourselves more to prayer? Yes. Yeah, we really should. Should we honor children in our midst? Yeah, we should do that. What about those that are marginalized on the fringes of our culture? Should we welcome them? Yes. We, we, we need to do all of those things. But I, I don't want us just walking away this morning thinking, we, oh, we should do that, we should do this, we should do that. It's not about what we should do necessarily. But before we can begin to see the wisdom of God and the power of prayer, before we can begin to honor those who are marginalized in our midst, what we have to understand is that we are not a building, we're not a staff, we're not an eldership, we're not just a community of believers who gather here uh, from time to time to sing or to pray, to worship God, but that we are the church. We are not our own idea. We, this is God's idea. The church was in the mind of God since the beginning of time. And it was his intent that through the church, that his manifold, multifaceted wisdom would be made known to not just the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, but to those around us. And as I said four weeks ago, and I'm sure you remember, it's not really about what we do here on Sunday mornings, that's the most important. It's what we do out there on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, because that's how the world sees us. The world is not, if you see, they're not peeking in the windows this morning saying, what are they, what are they doing in there? What's going on in there? I don't see anybody lined up doing that. So this is not how we display God's wisdom to the world. It's when we go out there and live and when we love and despite the color of your skin and despite the color of my skin, we love each other. There is no barrier. There's no dividing wall of hostility because Jesus Christ has made us all one. That's what shows the world that we love him, how we treat one another so that we can be salt and we can be light in our world. Therefore, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and what? Praise your Father in heaven. Give praise to God. That's what it's about. We are the church, and we are the light of the world. And we live in a very dark world, a broken world. 
And men and women are only going to see that goodness of God if they see it in us. And it's not just about living a life in front of them. It's also about opening our mouths and speaking a good word to them. I want to ask, I want to remind you to be praying, to be praying for those people on your relational map. We haven't been talking about this in a few weeks. The class is over. Are you still praying for that person that God would open a door for you to share? Have you thought about that anymore? We, we've, got to, we've got to be praying that God's going to open these doors for us to be salt and for us to be light. All right, everybody's getting hungry. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, he said, no man comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to get to heaven. I'm the only way to get to God the Father. If you want to come to God, you want to go to heaven, you've got to come through me. And this is what he's asked us to do. Believe. Believe. Believe that I am he. Believe that I am the one that was sent from God. Put your faith in me. Trust me that I have paid for your sins. And all we have to do is to turn away from that, repent of that, and say, God, I'm sorry. I believe. Come to him in faith. And then we do what he asks us to do. We repent of that sin and we're buried with him in baptism. If you need to do that, if you've never become a child of God, why not do that today? Love to see you baptized into Christ. The water's warm. I believe. I believe it's warm. Cassandra, it was warm, wasn't it? It was warm. You could be baptized into Christ. Maybe you just need to share something with us that we could lift a burden. We could pray for you. We could maybe even praise God. If you have a praise that you'd like to share, let's do that.